23. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Oh, I'm at 10, sorry. Let's start again. 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except only you. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from, from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters who are with me. Send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So Paul signs off from this letter. And in these closing words, I, I have a few questions that we're going to look at today. And, and one area I'm going to focus mostly on, picking up on where we were last week, about contentment. But here, here's my questions. Who was from Caesar's household? Do we have a credit account with God? Are you content? And then lastly, do you trust in God's provision? That first question, who was from Caesar's household? The 22nd verse tells us that he's sending greetings from people from that household. Think about the implications of just that line. He's in Rome. He's in Rome because he's under house arrest, a waiting trial. He was there for two years. So during those two years, now the church had already begun in Rome well before he got there. So the gospel message was spreading among some of the people in Rome, not a large group by any stretch. And yet here it is, the seat of power of the greatest empire in the world at that time. One of the greatest empires throughout ancient history, if not the greatest, the Roman Empire. And the leader of that empire, the Caesar, lives in a palace. Can you imagine what that palace looked like? And some of these people worked at Caesar's palace. No, not the casino. <laughs> but the real one. Now, how many people? Hundreds, at least. I don't know how many they needed to just take care of the cleaning, take care of the cooking. Take care, there, there, there's guards there. And, and all of that aside, then there's all the people that were part of the, the governing operation that was at Caesar's disposal. Caesar. He was probably Nero at that point. Now think about that. At, now, Nero early in his reign was not the tyrant that he became. He was actually a pretty good Caesar for a few years which is probably about when this was written. But then something happened in the mid-60s of the first century. This letter was probably written around 62, 63. So not long after that, there was a fire 
in Rome, and maybe you've heard about this. The, the legend is that Caesar played a violin as he said he burned. Okay, that may, that's probably just legend, but there really was a fire. And what also really happened was Caesar needed a scapegoat. He needed someone to blame for the fire. It wasn't true, but it didn't matter. He just needed someone to put the blame on to get it off of him, and he chose the Christians. And that began one of the many persecutions in the Roman Empire. Some of these believers in Caesar's household were probably a part of that persecution later. But just the fact that there was people working for... Now, now hear this. Caesar, and it's even on the coins of the time, was called son of God. And he was worshipped throughout the empire. Whether or not he was heartily worshipped by the people or just worshipped because they wanted to stay in his good graces and not get in trouble, you know, that, that's debatable. But the Caesar claimed himself to be a god or a son of a god. And there's people working in his, in his palace, in his domain, and yet, nah, him, son of god, no. We're not going to say that to his face, of course. So they met the true Son of God, Jesus the Christ, this very humble man from Nazareth, who was born in a humble little barn, or not even a barn, a, a stable of some kind, in a manger, to a poor family in a poor nation, who was oppressed by this very empire. And they turned to him for salvation, not to the one they worked for living in the palace that they worked at. Caesar's household was part of the church of Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? To know that happened. So that's just a little, I won't even call it an aside to the letter because it's a very important point. But other things that, that I noticed from this passage is this line from the 17th verse when it says, I desire that more be credited to your account. Now Paul is expressing his his sincerest gratitude for the gifts they gave him to care for his needs, as is right. He, he's, he's thanking them. And what he wants then is for them to have something credited to their account. Now that kind of hung with me. Is there an account in heaven with our name on it? Do we have a number somewhere? I mean, how does that work? When I was a kid... I don't know if my Sunday school teacher meant to convey this, but this is the way I perceived it. Um, when, you, when you give your offering, then it goes to heaven. Okay, I'm not sure how that transfer takes place, but uh, and this was before there was electronic transfer either. Yeah. Um, does God have an ATM? I don't know. But, um, of course, God doesn't need that. He doesn't need our money. And yet, I, I think the idea, the principle behind it is that, that, that we give to, to the work of the Lord. And, and God, you know, blesses us as we give. But then I looked up this word account in this context here in the fourth chapter of Philippians. And I found something quite surprising. The word account is in the Greek is the word logos. Logos is used throughout the New Testament 330 times to be exact. The vast majority of those, that word logos is our word, word, W-O-R-D. It also conveys some, some other ideas, um, one of them being that Jesus himself 
is the Word, John chapter 1. And the Word being logos meant more than just a word you write on the page or a word you say. And when you think about it, in English, the word word can carry a lot of depth. For example, are you a person of your word? So that carries more depth than just, I can read, I can write, I can speak. So the same goes with the word logos. But why would that word be translated into the word account? It happens eight times. So when I give my word to you, when I promise to do or say something, then I'm giving my word. I am now accountable for my words. I think that's part of the idea here. And let's look at a couple of, one of the other passages here, which also connects to another kind of scary childhood teaching I got, or teaching during childhood. This is from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. That's a little light on the screen. I'll read that for you. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That was preached at a camp meeting service I was at when I was about 12 years old. And the speaker conveyed this idea that we're all going to stand before God as we die. And there's this big white throne and billions of people are there, a countless number of people. And one at a time, you got to face him. <laughs> I don't know about you, that scares me. <laughs> and that stuck with me a long time. Like, is, is that... And, and, and what am I going to say? What am I going to do? Now, now the, the gospel message is that if you have Jesus, you don't have to worry. Everything's going to be okay. But it's still pretty intimidating. Is that an accurate concept of even the judgment seat of God? Is, is, is that accurate concept of, more to the point here, the heart of God? Let me give you another verse. Matthew 5, 16. Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Picture of a, a little girl happily, lovingly giving her father a card on Father's Day, a little gift to go with it. I like that. I got four daughters, three granddaughters. Okay? That idea that this child is, just can't wait to express her love to her daddy. You know what I don't see in that picture? You know what I don't have in my own memory of a very similar moments in my life? That dad isn't saying... Well, that's really nice, honey, but you didn't clean your room this morning. And in these grades of school, they really got to get up there. And, and, and oh, by the way, if you say one more bad word, you're in big trouble. Do you see that in that picture? No, I see joy in the father's face because of the love from his child. That's what I see. That's what I see in giving account to God. 
not a scary scenario where I have to bring the best that I am or bring my faith or bring my, bring my stuff, bring my good works, bring my righteousness and hide all my junk and hopefully I'm okay before God. That's not it. We just prayed our Father in heaven. We didn't say our really scary judge in heaven, hallowed be your name. We didn't say our frightening and dominant king and ruler. We said, our father. In the best term possible, in the best definition that you can conjure in your mind of what a a good father is, God is that and all more. So what we are giving account of before God is, Daddy, here's, here's what I got. I did this for you. Daddy, I, I, I gave what I could to help people financially. Daddy, I, I gave myself. I, I listened to that person that was hurting. I hope that pleased you. Daddy, I, I fed people that were hungry. I clothed people that didn't have enough clothing. Daddy, I, I, I gave food to the church so they could feed people at Christmas time for a nice meal together. I hope that pleases you, Daddy. And I use that word daddy very intentionally. In Scripture, Paul says this, he is his Abba Father. That is Greek basically for daddy. And yet too we, we've gotten so, I'll just use the word stigmatized by this idea that God is this big scary entity on a throne ready to zap you if you didn't do it right. And that's not the God revealed in Jesus. This is the God revealed in Jesus. So back to Philippians, when Paul is acknowledging their gift and thanking God for it and thanking them and then saying, I'm glad for you because this brings credit to your account. You have this, this more of your accounting before God is now increased in the sense of look what else you did for your loving daddy in heaven. And I'm glad for that. It's kind of like those of us that have siblings, we're glad for them when something good happens. We're glad for them when, when daddy acknowledges love for them as well. Certainly there is sibling rivalry in most families in some form or another. But in our best moments in a family, aren't we happy for one another and sharing one another's joys and sharing one another's sorrows? And that's how a church family can function too because we have the same loving daddy, amen? That's who we're giving an account to. This is how we give account to him. And then... The next question is about contentment. Now, back in the 11th verse, earlier in the same chapter, Paul says, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. That's kind of the theme here of the, the second half of the fourth chapter, contentment. And then he wraps it up about in 19th verse, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. This is a, a famous uh, painting you've probably seen before. I know I have. It's, it's beautiful. It's called Grace. And you see this, this humble man with a, 
kind of a, a fairly warm jacket on, or, or shirt, flannel shirt maybe. And um, so the room, the room might be cool, but not, not cold. And he has a beautiful loaf of bread and a bowl of soup in front of him. And there's a, a big Bible with his glasses ready to read, and he's thanking God. He's saying grace, as we call it sometimes, that prayer before we eat. That is a picture to me of contentment. I have food. I have clothing. I have the Word of God. I'm so thankful. Are you content? We all want this. And it's not hard to explain or understand the, the concept of being content. Hopefully we've all been there enough in our lives from time to time, and maybe more often than not, we, we feel content as followers of Jesus. We're thankful, and life's still got its rough edges and its challenges, but overall, thank you God for life. But when we're not there, when that flow of contentment gets disrupted, What's causing it? And that's what I want to take a few minutes on. Barriers and distractions to being content. And I think distractions is a very good word, especially in today's, in today's world. And in four ways that I see, they all start with C. These are our barriers and distractions. Comfort, convenience, com competition, and collection. Let's look at those one at a time. Comfort as a barrier or distraction to contentment and peace with God. In Proverbs 24, verse 32 to 34, it says this, I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief Scarcity like an armed man. Comfort. Comfort being in this context physically. Sleep is good. Rest is good. We need both. But we can get too much of a good thing. And being comfortable can keep us, for me, stuck to that easy chair. I really should get up, but oh, this is nice. I really got something else I got to do, but oh, I can wait. You've been there? It's that day where you don't have to get up. I probably should, but eh, let's go a little longer. Now, once in a while, that's good, but if that starts to become a pattern in your life, it's, it's going to disrupt your contentment with life because there's going to be a frustration about what could have and should have happened with the time where you laid there the extra hour and a half. Or you watched four more episodes on the binge. Or whatever else it is that you're doing that those things in and of themselves might not be so bad, but when that becomes your path or your pattern where comfort and, and just having everything at my disposal is important to me, that can disrupt it. And I want to th also think of comfort in another context. How many of us look forward to uncomfortable conversations? Anyone? 
anyone like that? <laughs> There's Paul again. The same guy who shops for Christmas in May. <laughs> now, sometimes we know that they're necessary and we know that we have to have them, but we don't run to them generally. But if we avoid the uncomfortable conversation moment, then what's happening, and perhaps more importantly, what isn't happening? Healing, forgiveness, reconciliation. Oh, I just don't like confrontation. Well, who does? I'll tell you who likes confrontation. Confrontation all people. And the rest of us, as long as we just stand back and shy away, we hand control to the out-of-control confrontational list. Comfort. If comfort becomes a god to us, we just back down and be quiet when we should have stepped in and spoke up. And the more we do that, the less content we find ourselves because we're still frustrated by a situation that might have changed or at least begun a road to change had we stepped in and spoken up and overcome the uncomfortable awkwardness of beginning the conversation of being with him or her. So this is important for us to recognize as one possible barrier to the peace of God, to the contentment with God that hopefully we all desire. And the second one is similar, convenience. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23, it says, All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Convenience. That which is the easiest path. Our world is built upon this. The, the technology of our world is built upon that word, convenience. Convenient. I can walk over to that wall and flick a little plastic lever that brings light on or off in this room instantaneously. Now you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? It's called a light switch, Pastor Paul. Yep. And in the overall history of humanity, do you know how long people had the ability, the opportunity to do that? What? Hundred, little over hundred years, hundred and fifty. I don't know when light switches and electricity and wiring all happened and make light. It's it wasn't that simple before. It sure is convenient though. It's convenient to go to that wall, touch a thermostat. Of course, now you can take your smartphone and adjust your thermostat from a thousand miles away. In my home, it's all wired up wirelessly. I can go turn my lights on and off at my house. I can, I can you know, do all kinds of things. I can, I can watch my dog. <laughs> all kinds of cool stuff. I'm not, I'm not shooting these things down. They're really cool. But when they start to become expected, when they start to become, <clears throat> what's the word? We... Almost, almost entitled within us, I, I have to have this. Then it begins to, to erode our contentment. And, then, and worse yet, the, the philosophy of contentment, excuse me, of, of convenience, 
flows into areas that just aren't that convenient. And convenience isn't, isn't going to work there. It can't work there. The, that hard talk I mentioned a moment ago, it isn't, isn't a convenient thing. When you go to Philippians 4, 8, and 9, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, you have Paul describing how to think if we want to achieve and, and, and live in the peace of God. He says, think about whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Do you see the word convenience there? In fact, if you think about those qualities, and then, of course, what we think about becomes our actions in time. These are not convenient principles. Truth is often very inconvenient. To be right, not selfishly right, but to, 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 to stand up for, to uphold, to say the right thing at the right time. It's not convenient always. Rarely is convenient. Purity, admirability, excellence, that which is praiseworthy. These are not qualities that are convenient. Convenience wants to cut things short. Convenience wants to make it easy. I got in my car this morning. Now for December, it's not bad out there as far as the temperature goes. I guess we're supposed to get a lot of rain. Um, but it's, it's, it's cool. So I turn on the engine of my car. And then I can hit this button. Some of you probably have this, many of you. That will warm my seat. Oh, I like that button. <laughs> Isn't that convenient? It sure is. I enjoy it. Now, it doesn't happen often here in Bushkill. Uh, rarely here in Bushkill, but you know, you go into town somewhere, especially a bigger town, you might have to parallel park your car. Anybody enjoy that? Where's Paul? Come on, put the hand up. I do. My dad taught me how to do it, and I know how to, get, how to parallel park. Well, for those who find it inconvenient, you can now buy a car. Maybe you have one. You get to that spot, you hit a button, let go, it'll do it for you. Isn't that convenient? And we can make a long list of, of what technology has helped us with, and I'm glad for so much of this. And yet when convenience becomes a god to us, it's going to erode and wipe out our contentment because it's never good enough. The internet itself, um, and some of you probably don't even remember this. This is, I mean, I, most of you probably do, I don't know. Remember what it was when you first logged on to the internet and there was that, that noise you made, okay? And, and, then, and then when you got, you started with Microsoft DOS and you had to type in a code to get to Microsoft Windows. Remember that? Now, now if my, my kids would look at me sideways. You actually had to do that? How inconvenient. It took all of 45 seconds to get online. Convenience. 
relationships are inconvenient. Relationships take time. Healing takes time. Forgiveness takes time. Building love and trust with people around you, with your family, your friends, your spouse, takes time. There is no convenient shortcut. There is no app on your smartphone to make it happen quicker, to avoid the pain, to avoid the discomfort. And the more we trust on life being convenient, the less content we are. Competition is the next one. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Philippians chapter 3 verse 7, Paul picks up on that same theme when he says, but whatever were gains to me, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. Loss. Jesus of Nazareth, the person Jesus, by human standards is a loser. People who are competitive and our competitive selves, our competitive nature, doesn't like to lose. Doesn't like to follow losers. And yet, if you are following Jesus of Nazareth, you are following a loser from the world's point of view. Why? He died in a cross. He didn't fight. Peter stood up to fight when he was being arrested and he stopped Peter from fighting. Jesus went to the cross and then if you do believe that he's the son of God and he, the access of all the power of heaven and he willingly died and suffered like that when he could have, as an old song said, called a thousand angels and released him and Brought vengeance upon his captors and tormentors? By the world's definition, Jesus is a loser. That loser lost everything that described there in the second chapter of Philippians and then came to life so that we can all win. But he didn't just do that so you can stand back and applaud and say, thank you, Jesus, I'm going to heaven. He did that to invite us into the same process. To die to yourself, to let go of the life that you've constructed for yourself, to let go of the things that, that somewhere in your heart of hearts you know aren't working out very well, but you keep going back to them, you keep staying on that path because you're, you're afraid to divert from it, because you're too prideful to admit that you're wrong, or whatever it is that is holding you back, holding you still in your life, and God is calling you into another life, but that life means letting go. That life means dying to yourself. That life means loss. So you can experience gain in Him. And all of you who follow Jesus understand this at one level. And, and it's not something that I stop learning. I still have things I have to die to. I still have things that I have to let go of. I have to have things that, that I walk through that dark path of, that mysterious path of death and then see life on the other side. It is a continual learning. This is what Jesus was talking about. To find life, you got to lose it. 
And for his sake, you'll find it on the other side. And I don't mean the other side being when you die, go to heaven. I mean when you are, are really letting go. And, and when you realize that a self-made me isn't working, and you know it's not working, and you let go of it, it feels like dying. It is an experience of loss, and it's a necessary experience of loss. And if we cling to life, our life, and we are competitive about it, I'm going to make it, I can win, I can do this, you want to stand before that big, intimidating throne before God and say, I deserve this. You got it. I got it coming from you. Come on. Bring it on, God. And here's why I deserve it. Here's my list of stuff. Here, here's my accomplishments. Here's all I gave, all I did, because I earned something, and you owe me. And no one can stand before God and say that. And we have to put aside that competitive idea and then trust Him. And some of you are competitive people, and that's a good thing in that it gives you drive. It, it, we need people that, that will initiate, that, that, that will keep things going, and, and want to see things done well. But every good quality has, has a dark side to it that we have to be aware of. And the dark side of the competitive spirit is you can be demanding of other people, and you can be very prideful for what does happen, and you don't accept loss very well, if at all. So if you're a competitive person, don't let that be a barrier to the contentment that God wants to give you. And the last one then is collection. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus speaks about a rich man that collected fortune. This is at verse 13. Someone from in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And let me pause there. So this is a financial question. A very selfish kind of question. As if Jesus is going to be an arbiter about some family dispute about the will. Okay? But here's what Jesus said then, verse 14. Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store up my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then you will get what you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Collection. Stuff. Here again, our culture is obsessed with it. I love Christmas. I love the celebration. I like the lights, the decorations, the songs. 
I like Rudolph. It's all fun. I like the tree. And you also know that we are obsessed, we mean collectively, and not just America, with getting stuff to go under there. Getting a lot of things. I don't have enough. I want more. I want to give, 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 or I want to receive, receive, receive. And, and so there's a good thing about giving. It, it's, it's an act of love, an expression of love. And we receive it thankfully. And we give in return when we can. And that, that's a good exchange. Of course we know that. But we also know the danger. The danger being that just more collecting of things. And as Jesus says elsewhere, where, where your, your heart is, your, excuse me, where your money is, your heart is also. And so our heart goes into those things. Collections, literal collections. When I was a boy, I collected baseball cards. Anybody else do that? Or other kinds of cards? Yeah. So um, my mom worked as a waitress and uh, when I was little. And we didn't have an allowance from mom and dad except this. Whatever tips my mom got in the form of pennies, we could have. And, and, and sometimes, now granted, this is the 1960s, so she wasn't making a lot on tips. <laughs> Some people might leave eight cents, all right? Um, but the three pennies from the eight cents, she would give to me and my brother, and then we'd divide them equally. And we'd save them up, and then we had enough. We would hop on our bicycles, have our pocket full of pennies, Ride a couple of miles to the little country store, look on the shelf where the bubble gum and the candy is, and there's baseball cards. And we buy as many as we could, took them home, chewed the bubble gum, and came with the cards back then, and then went back home and collected them in cigar boxes. My mother, working at the restaurant, brought home empty cigar boxes. They were handy for storing things in, and they were just the right size for baseball cards. And I had a couple thousand of them. And if I had them now, all of them that I had then, they would be worth many thousands of dollars. I don't have them. But you know what? The memory to me is richer than any money I could get today, even if I had them. Because collection of things doesn't last. They go away. Um, so it's, and each of us can relate in some way or the other. The things that we collect, we can enjoy, but they can begin to possess us, and they can also drive us away from being content because it never feels like enough. So I want to wrap up this morning with this 19th verse and in a sense wrapping up the whole book of Philippians. Next week we're going to go in a different direction just for Christmas Eve and then I'll announce next week what we're going to do once we get to January. By the way, uh, in two weeks Jason's going to be preaching um, on New Year's Eve day in the morning during that service, so pray for him as he prepares for that, and I know you're going to be blessed by what, what Jason has to share. But we wrap up Philippians from this 19th verse, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Whatever you need, does God have a lack of ability, a lack of provision to meet that need? Not at all. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the peace we can experience with you, the contentment that is waiting for us when we let go of the comforts and conveniences and the, the competition and the collection and trust you. Help us to do so. 
And let that one area of those four that we're struggling with the most plant a seed in our hearts that we trust you with that and help us to see change. In Jesus' name, amen.